You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Hey man, good to see you guys out tonight. Excited to be in God's Word with you. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. We are going to be in the New Testament book of James tonight. We're going to be looking specifically in James chapter 4. But before we do that, I wanted to just spend a moment to talk about the book of James and and what this letter represents. Because I know, I've had conversations with some of you who are new to your Bibles, and it's always a good idea for us to just remind ourselves of what it is that we're reading and to set the context for what it is that James is going to be talking about. Now, James is a letter written by a man named James, and he's writing his letter specifically to Jewish Christians who have been separated because of persecution. It's really the same kind of audience that Peter's going to write to in the next two letters that come after James. But what I find really interesting is that James, the author of this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. Half-brother because obviously Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but he was the father of James. And so James is the half-brother of Jesus. In fact, two books in your Testament are written by brothers of Jesus. James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus. And I, and I love, if you go to the beginning of these letters... Neither of these guys, neither James nor Jude, introduced themselves as the brother of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were Jesus' brother, every single email that I sent and every single text message I typed out would begin with, Brandon, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, would like to know if you want to grab lunch this week. Like, that's how I would start every single email and text message that I sent, right? That's like a really important way to identify yourself, and yet neither of these guys do that. How does James identify himself in chapter 1? James, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude does the same thing because by this point in time, being believers in Jesus Christ, this was a more important way for these guys to identify themselves than even being the biological brother of the Savior of the world, servants of Jesus Christ. Now, James writes this letter, and what it's primarily known for among Bible-reading Christians today is for being a very practical book. In other words, James is addressing how it is that we as Christians, we as servants of Christ, are to behave in our everyday lives. He deals with things like anger, how we use our words, how we care for other people, how we relate to the world around us, and dealing with the causes and the responses to conflict, all of these things are things that we can relate to in our everyday life. They weren't just in the first century. We deal with all of these things today. But what James ultimately does is he draws a direct connection between the faith that we have in Christ and how that faith works itself out in our day-to-day life. How does faith work itself out when I'm going about and and interacting with other people? How does faith work itself out in the relationship with the people that are directly around me? How does it work itself out in my response to the circumstances that I'm facing? And what he does is he puts to bed the wrong notion that you and I can have faith and still live our lives the way that we want. That's what James does. He puts that notion 
to bed. The key idea is found in verses 17 and 18 in chapter 1 when James says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without action is dead. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds, by the way that I live, by the way that I respond to the circumstances around me, by the way that I interact with the people who are in my life. That is a demonstration of this faith that I have in Jesus Christ. And ultimately what he's going to do is draw us into what it means for us to be close to God. And to have God be close to us through our response to what Christ has done. As we live this faith out in our lives, closeness with God. That's what we're talking about today. That's what intimacy with God is. It's, it's closeness to, it's nearness with God. And this idea of being close to God, of being near to God, can be challenging or even scary for some people. There's this hesitation to get too close in the same way that I might hesitate to get close to something that is enormously larger than I am. Anybody, anybody's heart pound a little faster when they think about what it would be like to swim up next to a blue whale in the ocean, right? Like, like that's a phobia that people have. It's called megalophobia, right? It's, it's being afraid of things that are enormously larger than you or even getting a little afraid to see just a picture of something small in comparison to something large. Now, we often talk about what it means for God to be big, for God to be infinitely big, and that can give you and me pause when we start talking about what it means to get close to him. What does it mean to draw near to a God who is infinitely bigger than I am. And this is what James is going to deal with beginning in chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 this evening. And through this passage, I want you to notice three contrasting ideas that James gives us that consider what it means to be close to God. Three contrasting ideas that he says, here's how you draw near to God and how God draws near to you. And as we talk about these things, one of the things that I want us to consider is the why. James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What I want us to look at is why do we draw near to God? Why is it that I need to pay attention to these things and be close to him when that idea can be scary? And so beginning in verse 4, James writes this. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So beginning with this main idea that as we come near to God, God comes near to us, we're going to look at these three contrasting ideas that practically show us how it is that we draw near to God in a way that also causes him to draw near to us as he's promised. And then we're going to look at the why. 
Because if the thought of being near God is challenging or scary for you, then I want to help you get to a place where you want to be near him. Where near him is the only place that you want to be and you'll settle for nothing else that the world has to offer because it's the best place for all of us. But we have to understand what's required. We have to understand the practical side of what James says when he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And the first contrasting idea that we're going to look at is that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Friendship with the world means enmity against God, as James says there in verse 4. In other words, intimacy with God requires a turning away from the world. Friendship with the world and friendship with God are mutually exclusive. That means that they cannot exist at the same time. The picture that I get is the world is over at that window and God is over at that window. And the closer I get to one or the other, I move farther away. So I can't cozy up to the world and at the same time be close to God. I'm moving in one direction or the other. I can't be moving towards both of them at the same time. That's what James is talking about. It's impossible. And this can be one of those things that gives us pause when it comes to drawing near to God because we are conditioned from birth. From the moment we arrive into this world, we are conditioned to love this world and to love everything about it. And throughout our entire lives, everything around us continues to draw us in and to try to show us that there's something better, that life can be fulfilled by buying in or becoming like the world around us. And I think that James addresses this because those to whom he is writing had begun buying in. They had begun looking like the world. Notice how he started that verse. You adulterous people. Adultery means stepping outside of the relationship with your spouse and stepping into a relationship with someone else. Some had already begun to step out of their relationship with God in order to step into a relationship or back into a relationship with the world. And if it was true then, it's certainly true for us today. How do we know this? Because it has become increasingly more difficult to tell the difference between Christians and non-Christians. It has become much more challenging to tell the difference. Christians were always meant, always meant to stand out from the world, to be different, to be the weird ones. The ones that, that don't exactly fit in and don't exactly belong. Different priorities and different definitions of right and wrong and different relationships, a different hope and a different joy. All of these things were meant for us to stand out and look different from the world. Now, Amanda and had a conference back in August where she was in Las Vegas. I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to travel out there with her and get some time away. Um, and so she flew out to Vegas, and I was going to fly out a couple days later. And the day that she got there, she, she called and she said, when you come, bring Tylenol, um, because there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of lights, and there's a lot of people. You're probably going to hate it. Um, but I was like, I booked my tickets, I'm going. So we go out to Vegas, and I had never been west of St. Louis. This was a brand new experience for me. Um, and so, you know, got to experience everything that Vegas had to, had to offer. 
Um, but on that last night that we were there, I had made, that was the only thing I wanted to do was eat like at a nice steak place. I didn't want to spend money anywhere else just at this nice restaurant. And so we, we made early dinner reservations because we're on Pacific time and we're old and we needed to eat early. And so we were going to go out on a Friday night. We had to walk because we didn't have a car and it was just down the, the Vegas Strip. It was like a 20 minute walk in 115 degree heat in the desert. And we walked to this restaurant. And after we got finished eating, she said, oh, we haven't gone to see the fountain show at the Bellagio. We can't come to Vegas without seeing that. So we had to walk all the way back to our hotel and then 15 more minutes to get to the Bellagio to see this 45 second fountain show at the Bellagio on a Friday night. And as we got there, we got finished up, we started walking back towards the hotel, the sun began to set. And the change in the atmosphere was palpable. Like it was just different. Because every minute that we were out on that road, that minute was weirder than the last minute that we were out there. Every single minute was getting weirder and weirder. And I looked at her and I said, we have to get inside. Like, <laughs> this is no place for us. We've got to go. And so we, we, we moved faster and we got inside the hotel and we thought we were safe. And then there was weird stuff going on inside the hotel. And we finally got up to our room and that is where we stayed until we boarded the plane the next morning, right? Like, like Vegas is just known for this that everything goes. You can literally do anything you want as long as you don't try to steal money from casinos. That's how Vegas operates. When people get drunk on the streets, the police want to release them faster so that they can get into casinos and spend more money. That's how the city operates. Kevin DeYoung writes, worldliness is whatever makes sin look natural and righteousness look strange. In that place... Sin was natural. Righteousness was unnatural. Like we looked different. We stood out. And we felt like we weren't part of the world than we ever have anywhere else that we had been. But you know, you don't have to go to Las Vegas to see what the world's like. Or to see that Christians have begun fitting into the world as opposed to standing out from it. You simply need to look at social media feeds to see where we've placed our morals and our priorities and our values and our hopes. And the real test is how many likes you get from non-Christians. How many non-Christians like the things that you put on Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter or wherever it is that you're posting? It's the exact opposite of what Jesus had to say. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world to stand out, to be different, to be weird. And we already know that the world is becoming more and more hostile to Christians and Christian ideals. Outside of a Kirk Cameron movie, I challenge you to find one movie or TV show on Netflix that is positive towards Christians or uh, displays Christians in a positive light. It doesn't exist. It's not there because the world has become hostile towards Christians and Christian ideals and we have become the villains. It hates the things that we're supposed to believe in and stand for and the truth is that we're the ones funding it. Admittedly, I have a Netflix subscription. I'm funding this. It's part of the world. So the reality is that as much as the world promises, it will never deliver. 
It will just keep promising and promising and promising and reeling you into that next thing that will always, always lead to disappointment. Not only will it disappoint, but it will outright reject you and spit you out the moment you decide that you are no longer going to conform. We see it happening every single day. But James calls us to something different. To closeness and friendship with a God who keeps his promises always. When God brought the Israelites into the promised land through Joshua. Remember, Moses had led them around in the desert, but they were disobedient, and so they had to wander for 40 years, and Moses himself had been uh, disobedient, and so God said, you're not gonna see the promised land. I'm gonna use my servant Joshua, and he's gonna lead the people into the promised land, and they have to cross the river to get there. And when God brings them into the promised land, Joshua writes this, not one, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel has failed. Every one has been fulfilled. And this is the same God to whom Joshua was referring when he promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That God won't cancel you. If you draw near to him by walking away from the world, then he will draw near to you. Now, if I'm given the choice of a friend who never keeps his promises and a friend who always keeps his promises, I'm going to choose the one who always keeps his promises all day long over everything else and over everybody else because that's who I want to draw near to. That's who I want to be next to. Second contrast that James gives us is in verse 6. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humility and pride are opposites here, and he calls us to draw near to God with humble and not prideful hearts. One of the roadblocks in the way of intimacy with God is the belief that we really don't need him or we really don't need to be that close to him. Like, I, I can do things on my own. You hear it in things like, I'm not worried, I'm a good person, at least I'm not like him or her, they're messed up, but I've got everything together, I earned all of this, this is, this is mine, right? That, that's a prideful heart, and it's a product of this world in which we live. My undergrad was in business, and you spent an entire semester in a class that just taught you how to shake hands, write resumes, and go to interviews. That was the whole class. And one of the things they, they taught us in that class was how to go in and how to interview well. And the point was you always upsell yourself. You convince that, that person across the table or that group of people across the table that you are the exact right person that they're looking for by just selling yourself as much as you can. Prove to them that they need you. And if they don't need you, then they're probably a terrible company anyway. Like that was, that was the whole theme of that class. And it's opposite of what God is telling us. We don't draw near upselling ourselves to God. Jesus gives us the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 as an illustration. Luke begins in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. To some who want to upsell themselves to God. To prove to God that, that they have something that he needs. And without them, then, then, then he is less valuable. In other words, if you believe that you're good enough or you've earned your spot next to God by your works, then, then this is for you. Listen up. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, 
robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even, even like this tax collector who's standing here next to me. I fast twi- twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I get, all the things that he's commanded to do. But the tax collector, the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he, he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, not the lawkeeper, but the tax collector who went home justified. He was the one closer to God than the Pharisee ever had been. So the point is not that God is calling you to look down on yourself, but to have a right understanding of your need for forgiveness and a right understanding of your need for him and to be near him. That's why James says in verse 8, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Because you can't understand your need for a savior unless you also humbly accept that you've sinned against this God and you've disqualified yourself from being in relationship with him. That God didn't do that, you did that to yourself. And so James wouldn't tell us to wash our hands and purify our hearts unless our hands were dirty and our hearts were impure. He says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. The son didn't take on flesh and suffer and die and rise from the dead for perfect and righteous people. That would be pointless. No, he came because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we needed him in our sin. But the genius and beauty of our faith, of Christianity, is that there is no other teaching. There is no other worldview, no other religion that shows us our capacity for being renewed and restored. That he will exalt those who humble themselves. He'll lift them up and set them on a high place, not because of their righteousness, but because of his love and his goodness. And so we need to have a right understanding of our need for him in order to have a right understanding of the depth of God's desire to be close to us. He so desired it that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He so desired it. And so he'll draw near to those who humbly draw near to him, to those who accept their need for a savior. Jesus didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick, those who needed healing. Third contrast that James gives us is in verse seven, and that's to submit to God and resist the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. Ephesians 2 tells us that when we were friends of the world, when we were separated from God in sinfulness, that we were at that time subject to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Paul is talking about Satan. Romans 6 says that we are slaves to the one whom we obey. We're slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to the devil or we are slaves of Christ. You cannot be both. Like friendship with the world and friendship with God, these ideas are mutually exclusive. We cannot have two masters. We can have just one. And so closeness with God requires submission to him and obedience to his way. I can't be close to God and also be in open rebellion to the way that he wants me to live as it's been revealed through the pages of my Bible. God has told me how it is I need to live my life. James is just one example of that, but it's all over our Bibles. 
The Bible, by the way, which is very clear in its call for us to live holy and righteous lives by declaring Jesus to be our Savior. Yes, we humbly come to him admitting that we have a need for a Savior, but also what? Also our Lord. That he's our, our, our king, the one that we're going to listen to and obey and, and trust in. Now, we try to get around this by scrutinizing every command that we don't like or that indicts our way of life or to make exceptions where it's convenient for us. It's like me telling Parker that, that I want him to clean his room. And of course, what I mean is, go clean your room. Like, that's what I mean by that statement. But what if, instead of going to clean his room, he got a group of his friends together and they sat around a living room and they looked at my command in multiple different languages. And then they, they, he comes to me and I said, did you clean your room? No, no, but we discussed it in detail. And we've decided that that's not really what you mean. What you really mean is you just want me to be happy. And being in a clean environment will make me happy. Well, let me assure you that I don't need my room to be clean in order to be happy. And so as long as I'm happy, we're, we're good. No, what did I tell him to do? Go clean your room. It's not about your happiness. I, I've asked you to go and do something, and we do this all the time. So often in the name of this belief that my happiness is God's primary concern, but please hear me when I say this. God's ultimate concern is not your happiness. He wants you to experience closeness with him through your submission and obedience, and that's where we find fulfillment. And that's where we find joy. If I say it, that's where we find happiness. But that's not the ultimate concern. Even when the command seems to be too much for you, more that you're willing to do, more than you're willing to give up, God's concern is your, your submission to him and your, your obedience for his glory. And from the outside, this can sound harsh and difficult, and the world certainly views much of the commands given in Scripture as oppressive because they stand against the freedom to live life any way that you want, and that has become the most important thing to the world, is living life any way that you want. You be you, you live your own truth, you don't submit to anyone but yourself. The world has come to believe that obedience to God and submission to his way leads to unhappiness, misery, and a suppression of who you really are. And yet, yet we find just the opposite. The world's way leads to dissatisfaction, while God's way leads to a greater contentment and fulfillment, real life, in the way that he's called us to live. Turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 22, all the way back to the beginning for a moment. Many of us know this story, but if you're new to the Bible, then maybe you, you don't. God had called Abraham, and he said, I'm, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abraham is the father, the beginning of the Jewish nation, the Israelite nation, the Hebrew people. But in order for this nation to come, God had said, I'm going to give you a son through your wife, Sarah. That, that's who this nation is going to come through. And as the years passed and he and Sarah got older, it seemed impossible for them to have a child. But God was faithful, and they ultimately do have a son by the name of Isaac. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and so Isaac became their joy. This was the one through whom God's promise was coming. Imagine just wanting a child so badly as, as so many of you do. 
And then God finally grants that to you. He's 100 years old. And then we get to chapter 22. And God gives Abraham this command. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, now consider for a moment what must have been going through Abraham's head or what would be going through your head. Now, this is my, my only child. I, I have prayed for this boy, for this son, for so many years. God, you, you said that your promise was going to come through this son. You, you made a promise. How are you going to take that away? You know, I'm 100 years old. I'm as good as dead, and there's no way that we're going to be able to have another child before I die. This was it. This was our last opportunity. Taking all of this into consideration, it would have been easy for Abraham to scrutinize and rationalize God's command and just twist it into something that God didn't say. You know, God wants me to be happy, and so he can't really mean for me to, to sacrifice this child he just wants me to show him that I'm willing to give up something valuable. And so I'll take something that's valuable to me, not, not, not Isaac, but I'll take something that's valuable to me and I'll sacrifice it to God and that'll be enough. This is the kind of thinking that we get into. Of course, God's command gave no provision for this kind of thinking as many of his commands don't. Look how clear God was. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and then he names him. You take Isaac. And you take him up on that mountain and you sacrifice him there. Abraham knew that he couldn't get around it. So verse 3 demonstrates single-minded, unquestioned obedience. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He says to his servants, you stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and we will come back down to you. Upon reaching the place where the sacrifice was to occur, Abraham bound his son Isaac and he, he places him on the altar, and he pulls out the knife. Pulls out the knife, ready to do what God had commanded him to do. But as he drew his knife to kill him, God calls out, and he says, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that if God had not called out to Abraham in that moment, that he would have plunged that knife into Isaac. I have no doubt about it at all. The author of Hebrews gives us commentary when he writes that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. See, he believed wholeheartedly that if God allowed him to kill Isaac, that he was still going to fulfill his promise, even if that meant he had to raise Isaac from the dead. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had in his God. That even if he killed his son, God was going to make it right. He was going to fulfill this promise that he had made to make Abraham into a great nation. But where I want us to focus our attention on is the change in Abraham and God's relationship before 
and after he demonstrated his willingness to submit to God in full authority and full obedience. You can read it between the lines. Because as he and Isaac walked the mountain, I would say that Abraham was already pretty close to God. He had spent the majority of his life walking in relationship with God. He had made some mistakes along the way, and yet God continued to be with him and continued to make promise to him and continued to, to guide him. But I would argue that when he and Isaac were on their way down from that mountain, everything was different. Everything was different. Look at God's response. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you love me, that you belong to me and not the world. And I'm sure Abraham's response was similar. More than ever before, God, now I know how faithful you are because you've not taken this son from me. Abraham went up on the mountain with Isaac. And when he came down, Isaac was still his, but his relationship with God was even closer than it had been before. It had changed the whole dynamic of how he trusted God and how he saw God work and move by demonstrating his willingness to give up that which was most important to him. See, in that moment, Abraham had drawn near to God. God had drawn near to Abraham. And it was all through this single-minded, unquestioning obedience to God's will, even if the command seemed too difficult for him. Even if it seemed like there was no way that he could do it, that he could give up this thing, or that he could live life a different way, or that he could, he could see himself in a different way, that he could see himself through the eyes of God. He was closer to God than he ever had been. So the world's views, God's commands is oppressive. But John writes to us, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. We love God by keeping his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. What you and I find when we embrace submission to God's way in this single-minded obedience to his commands is that we are drawn into a deeper and more fulfilling life than we ever thought possible. Why draw near to God in obedience and submission? Because he created life. And so he's the only one qualified to tell us how to live life, how to do things his way, how to be most fulfilled how to love the right way, how to be in relationship with people the right way, how to respond the right way. That's what James is all about. Taking our faith and living life the way God designed it to be lived. So that's the question that I want to ask is, do you feel right now in this moment that God is near to you? Does he seem close? If not, then perhaps you need to evaluate in what way you're drawing near to him. Are you drawing near to him in the way that, that James has commanded so that God will also draw near to you? Are you standing out from the world or, or are you indistinguishable from the world? Do you look like non-Christians around you? Are you holding on to some pride that has caused you to believe that you don't need to be close to God? That you've got it all together, and believe me, I tell you that all it takes is one circumstance to help you understand that you don't have it all together. When everything comes crashing down, 
Or have you yet to submit to his will for you in obedience to what he's commanded through the pages of his word? I ask these questions in order to encourage you to take this walk towards nearness with God. As someone who has felt near to God and felt far away from God and and sometimes in the span of just a few moments, right? This moment I feel close, this moment I feel far away. I can tell you that there is nothing greater. There's nothing greater than being close to this God because yes, he is infinitely bigger than us. And yet what is he, he opens up his arms and he wraps us up into himself and he says, you are mine. I want to have relationship with you. I want you to know what it means to stand out, to live the life that I, I've called you to live. I, I want you to know what it means to need a savior, but, but I also want you to know that I've given that savior, that I've provided a way for you to be close to me when you couldn't be close to me. It's the only place where promises are really kept, where the humble are really exalted and where you understand that doing things God's way is the best way always. That's what God has called you into. And so my encouragement is to draw near to him and let him draw near to you. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, help us to understand this reality that you have drawn us in. That you've made a way for us to be near to you. That you've called us to have life and have it to the full. And of course, there are things that we need to walk away from and ways that we need to to live differently. But God, you've empowered us to do that as well because you've overcome the world. So we thank you, Lord, that you've done that. Help us to see to see you and to see ourselves through your eyes as we draw near. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.